Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, bracing for consequences from China following this week's decision on Meng Wanzhou. We do know that there is a decision that should have been made in the Michael Savior and Michael Covert cases back in January that um, did not happen. And so it is very likely and experts expect an escalation in their cases. The Prime Minister points to the need for a global coordinated plan to help the world's economies recover from COVID-19. It matters to all of us how this global economy weathers the storm. Our success, both at home and together as an international community, hinges on it. And should we expect setbacks over the next few weeks and months as provinces continue to relax restrictions? We need to be really careful as we um, sort of resume um, certain activities and uh, relax public health measures. So this is, um, you know, an example of people watching those trends really carefully. I think uh, there's always been the message in different jurisdictions that there's a flexibility in the public health system to reinstate or pull uh, back on some of the uh, measures as they see fit. It's Friday, May 29th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by HuffPost Canada's Ottawa Bureau Chief and the host of the follow-up podcast, Althea Raj. Good morning, Althea. Good morning, Mark. So what should we expect in the days ahead from China? Will there be some retaliation against Canada for the Meng Wanzhou uh, extradition hearing uh, outcome in a B.C. court? The Prime Minister on Thursday was asked whether he thought that it would lead to more retaliation, as many experts have suggested with regards to Michael Kovrig Kovrig and Michael Spavier, who are still detained in China and have been detained since December 2018 and whether he expected more retaliation to Canadian businesses. Um, He did not really answer that question, uh, but um, experts from, uh, you know, former uh, Canada ambassadors to China to uh, experts who study this in universities have all basically said that Canada should brace for an escalation, especially with regards to the Michael Spader and Michael Goldberg cases, um, which is really unfortunate because, as we know, they have been uh, detained with, um, you know, not the um, the liberties that uh, Meng Wanzhou uh, has yeah. living in a <laughs> large, beautiful mansion wearing an ankle bracelet and certainly having authorities track her every move, but she is not uh, in a, a dark cell without access to um, consular, legal, and uh, family. Yeah. Very, very true. So what should we watch for? Is there any sense of what form uh, some type of retaliation might take? If there is something specific, uh, the Chinese government and the Canadian government have not verbalized what they think that is. We do know that there is a decision that should have been made in the Michael Savior and Michael Covert cases back in January that um, did not happen. And so it is very likely, and experts expect, an escalation in their cases. Um, but if it comes down to, you know, more trade, uh, on the one hand, we're having a very constructive relationship with China on personal protective equipment, for example. Um, on the other hand, we have not shied away from signing on to, like, Australia's motion, uh, asking for a review of what happened with regards to the coronavirus. Um, Canada did not shy away this week from signing a public declaration condemning China for what it was doing to Hong Kong and basically 
suppressing the democratic rights of residents there. And we know there's 300,000 expats, apparently, that live in Hong Kong. So it, obviously, this is not a good position to be in. And the relationship in the Chinese media and in the Canadian media is being described as, you know, the worst we've ever seen. Yeah. All right, let's turn to the coronavirus situation. And the Prime Minister yesterday was talking about the need for a global plan, a coordinated plan around the world to have economic recovery happen. Uh, what would that look like? What kinds of conversations are taking place? And and how does this line up with other conversations the Prime Minister is having with world leaders right now? Because he's been having a lot of those lately. <laughs> he has. If you look at his itinerary, it seems like he has a call with uh, a different prime minister or president uh, almost every day. So um, the Prime Minister, obviously, we can't separate this from the context that Canada is running uh, for a temporary two-year seat on the U.N. Security Council. And that vote uh, by all of the General Assembly will happen in uh, mid-June, so just a few weeks away. Uh, What we saw on Thursday is the Prime Minister basically co-hosting a very high-level meeting uh, with the Prime Minister of Jamaica and the UN Secretary General. And that the topic of the conversation was on financing uh, for basically um, developing countries in the COVID-19 era and beyond. So a lot of smaller countries are very worried that they are not going to have the financial means to get out of this crisis. And while this is not a topic uh, that has garnered that much attention in Canada, one thing that the Canadian ambassador has been pushing at the United Nations is on financing for developing countries, leveling private uh, capital, uh, working with other governments. And so it kind of fits in a theme that Canada was already exploring. Um, And that's one of the reasons why Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister, was asked um, to co-host this event. But we are in a tough fight with Norway um, and Ireland, which we have talked about. And um, nothing really concrete came out of Thursday's uh, meeting. We heard lots of speeches from heads of state and heads of governments from around the world. Basically, the takeaway was there will be um, working groups formed and they will report back in July with some um, very prescriptive suggestions as to what should get done. But of course, that will be after the United Nations vote. All right. Closer to home. Let's talk about what's happening and where we go from here. We're at the end of another week uh, and there are restrictions being lifted. Things are reopening in different parts of the country. And Teresa Tam was asked yesterday about whether that could lead to setbacks, a second wave or even just an increase, a small increase in the number of infections in this country. What should we be watching for as provinces continue to relax some of the restrictions? Yeah, well, one of the things that came out of um, yesterday's uh, news cycle was an announcement from Premier Higgs in New Brunswick that there is a case there where a healthcare worker um, went to Quebec on a private visit and did not isolate uh, for 14 days upon his return to the province. And that healthcare worker ended up going to the local hospital, and now there is a new outbreak. Now, there's only three, it seems, potential cases, but the province is so worried that they had to shut down the hospital and the emergency ward, I should say, not the entire hospital, but basically surgeries in the emergency ward, uh, for 24 hours. 
Um, and so this is a prime example of what can happen when people don't follow the rules. And it is tempting. And, you know, people have been cooped up at home for a long time to uh, want to go see friends and family and perhaps get a little bit too close or spend too much time in public areas. Um, and uh, this is a stark reminder of how just actions by a few could uh, hamper our um, uh, group effort at um, trying to get back to life as, as, as normal. Yeah. It's almost weird to say that. We also saw this week that in Ontario, Premier Ford decided to extend the emergency orders by at least another week. So, um, you know, nobody will be able to meet with groups larger than five until at least June 9th now. Um, and uh, he made no secret that um, if the numbers don't change, um, it's possible that uh, Ontario is, you know, not reopen for business as perhaps uh, was expected several weeks ago. So um, in some cases, in some places in the country, clearly the first wave is over. In some places, especially in Ontario, <laughs> um, it's possible that there's a second peak coming. And that's something that is very concerning um, to healthcare experts uh, in Ontario and in Quebec. Yeah. And uh, we should talk as well about the other big development this week around long-term care facilities, the military's mm-hmm. report on five homes in the Toronto area, because even though this is not technically federal jurisdiction, there are federal politicians who are commenting on it and saying that there needs to be some type of coordinated action across the country to address what's going on in seniors' residences and long-term care facilities. Yeah, the Prime Minister has been kind of hinting about this for several weeks, but we didn't really know what he was talking about. And I'm not clear if he even knew this um, uh, this report by the Canadian Forces would be coming. But he has been suggesting for weeks now that the, what is happening in the long-term care homes, especially in Ontario and Quebec, but also we saw cases across the country, um, that there is a reckoning of sorts happening. Um, and the reports by the military of the situation they encountered in Ontario and in Quebec, especially in Ontario, um, has uh, really forced provincial politicians uh, to come out forcefully and to pledge that changes will be made. Now, of course, when they say this, they're all looking to Ottawa uh, to open its wallet to uh, fix the problem. And most of the questions to the Prime Minister have really been directed about national standards. It's something that we heard uh, Patty Haidu, the health minister, Muse about several weeks ago, and there was a little bit of backlash, especially in Quebec, where, you know, this is a provincial jurisdiction, why would Ottawa want to intervene? This is unacceptable. But I think the way to get over that is really just, you know, uh, is Ottawa willing to fork over the cash needed to make some of the changes? Because basically, the, the situation that has been highlighted, uh, mostly in privately run homes, but uh, I'll remind the listener that it, Most of these homes are provincially funded. Basically, uh, whether you're in a private home or or a public home, the provincial government uh, pays a set amount. And then the resident, if you're in a private home uh, without a subsidy, would pay basically room and board. You're not paying the total cost. But um, because the funding has been so low and in some cases um, not predictable, at least that's what we were hearing from the unions, there is a concern that 
cuts have basically happened on the backs of the workers. That instead of uh, hiring people full time, for example, they've been hiring part time workers because they don't need to pay them benefits, and this is cheaper. And this is why we had um, healthcare workers going from one long term care home to another long term care home. This week we saw. Premier Ford uh, say that Ontario is going to take over the management of five homes, four of which were listed in the military's report. And Premier Legault on Thursday said uh, basically a call to arms asking people to come and uh, please train and become an orderly. And the government's going to um, pay uh, $10,000 more in annual wages, so it's about $50,000. Um, and we'll pay you to do your training because they need uh, more workers to come. And there was already, I mean, this is the sad part about all this is many of these problems we have known for years, if not decades, the short staff, the inability to retain staff. So now the provinces are focused on this problem. Um, we saw Premier Legault basically urge uh, the federal government to keep the military um, in uh, the long-term care homes in Quebec as long as possible. He suggested September, but uh, Defense Minister Hadrian Sajjan said, no, the military cannot uh, work seven days a week um, in the long-term care homes for the next few months. It just doesn't have the manpower to do that. So there's a, a little bit of a provincial-federal tiff on this front uh, happening as well. All right, Althea, great to have your comments on all of this. Thank you. Have a great weekend. Thank you very much, Mark. You too. Please keep safe. That's Althea Raj, HuffPost Canada's Ottawa Bureau Chief and the host of the follow-up podcast. China doesn't work quite the same way and don't seem to understand that we do have an independent judiciary from political uh, intervention. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. At ctvnews.ca, Don Martin argues it's time for the Prime Minister to ban Huawei. Martin writes... The proof that Huawei's integration into our 5G network comes with an unacceptable security risk was unmasked by China's furious reaction to a superior court judge ruling that Meng Wanzhou's extradition process can continue. It underscores how the interests of the company and the country are the same. China has proven the integration of Huawei technology in Canada would be for the benefit of its own self-interests above all other considerations. In the Globe and Mail... Lori Turnbull argues Canada's opposition parties were already weak. Now they've been kneecapped. Turnbull writes, As businesses gradually reopen across the country, Canada's federal legislature is choosing to do the opposite. Until September, there will be no opposition days and no private members' bills. This is a perplexing circumstance, particularly in a period of minority government when opposition parties hold the balance of power. The new rules for the hybrid parliament have made a weak opposition even weaker at the worst possible time. In the Ottawa Citizen, Kathy Brock asks if our governing institutions are functioning as they ought to during the COVID-19 crisis. Brock writes, Parliament has been mostly relegated to the sidelines. Calls by the opposition parties for more involvement in policy making have been dismissed, and it may hurt us. The short-term danger is that the government's responses may have costly flaws that could have been prevented with opposition scrutiny. The long-term peril is that the balance between the executive's ability to act decisively and Parliament's ability to ensure that government action is transparent no longer holds. 
Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Prime Minister will chair the Cabinet meeting before a news conference to provide an update on the COVID-19 situation. This afternoon, he'll attend the virtual United Nations African Group meeting. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Friday, May 29th. Tune in to CPAC and CPAC.ca throughout the day and weekend for continuing coverage of the coronavirus crisis. Our podcast returns Monday morning. Have a great weekend.